We're in our second to last week in the book of Hosea. Last week I shared about my not so good, kind of sorry, pretty bad week. It was one of those laptop on the computer keyboard kind of weeks. It was one of those missing the H key on the keyboard kind of week. Well, this week continued. We had a brief visit to our house by an ambulance. Not to worry, everybody is okay. I had a bad elbow injury as well, and many of you know I suffer from a nerve disease, and I'm disabled in both of my arms. And so when accidents happen, pain levels are high. So it was another one of, of, of those weeks. Last week in Hosea chapters 8 through 10, we asked the question, where do we go during difficult times? Who or what do we trust in in the midst of our trials? That's certainly applicable to many of us. Well, in chapters 11 through 13, we're faced really with the opposite question. What about when things are going well? Where do you go to? Who do you rely on during the good weeks, the good months, the good seasons of life, the good year, when things are going according to plan? Well, this is one of the main questions in our passage today. Hosea began his ministry there in the northern kingdom called Israel, also referred to as Ephraim in our passage. It was an era of great military prowess, material blessing. See, Assyria, their neighbors, were struggling at the moment. Temporarily, they were less powerful, less of a threat, and so that meant Israel was facing prosperity. These were the good old days. But in the midst of it, there was a problem. Israel had turned away from God. So here's the main point this morning, just one point. In good times, in good times, remember God's love for you because pride will bring judgment. It's the one overarching point today. In good times, remember God's love for you because pride will bring judgment. And again, we'll just walk through the text. We have three chapters to cover. Let's start chapter 11, verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. In the book of Genesis, we see Israel left for Egypt during a famine. And what started as a dozen men and their families, it grew to over a million. And the Pharaoh, the leader of Egypt, grew nervous Nervous that the Israelites might, maybe they do a coup, maybe they try to take over, maybe they try to exert their influence. And so the Pharaoh got nervous, he enslaved all of the Israelites. And so it was there out of that slavery, out of Egypt, through the Exodus, that God called out his people. Does this language remind you of anything? In Matthew chapter 2, we see that Jesus was also called out of Egypt. Jesus' experience corresponded to what Hosea had written about Israel here. And this call was filled with affection. Did you notice it? I called my son. Now, as a parent, you can remember back to when your children were born and you watched them grow up. 
There was an undying love. This was God's love for his nation Israel. And Israel did nothing to be called by God. Deuteronomy 7 tells us, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. God loved them not because there was anything attractive in them. God loved them not because they were strong, not because they had earned the favor of God, not because they did enough good works, not because they pleased God. No, Deuteronomy tells us that he loved them simply because he loved them simply because he chose to set his love and set his affections on Israel and because he had promised that. Verse 2, though, the more God pursued his people, the more they rebelled. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to the idols. This is the image of a parent lovingly raising their child, but as the child grows up, something changes. Maybe they start high school. Maybe they go off to university and they wander away. They reject the godly ways of their parents and they look to the world. And God says in verse 3, Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them by the arms, but they did not know that I healed them. This is incredibly moving. This is God speaking. This is God tenderly caring for his son. It's impossible to read these words and not be moved. As a parent, I take all kinds of cute videos of my kids. If you have little kids or had little kids, you might take cute videos of them. And some of the videos we take is when our children start to learn how to walk. And maybe when they first started stumbling a bit, you would take them, just like God says here, you take them by the arm. Maybe you take them by their little finger and you help them walk around. And then when they finally take their first steps on their own, you cheer and you clap. It's a memorable moment with your child. Now, kids, you can ask your parents later on today when you took your first steps. It's likely your parents will remember when and how it happened. It's a memorable time. God says, I did this for Israel. I was there with them in their spiritual infancy. I grabbed them by the arm. I helped them to walk. And I was there to heal them when they were sick. See, babies and young children, they're helpless. When they get sick, they can't heal themselves. I've seen no baby crawl over to the medicine cabinet to open up the cabinet, to open up the jar, to read the back, to see the exact dosage, and then to take the dosage on their own. No baby has ever done that. Not even baby Einstein could do that. No, a parent has to do everything. A parent has to assess the situation, give you medicine, take you to the doctor. God is saying, I was there for you, Israel, when you were helpless. You would have died without me, but they didn't see it was God. Well, God continues in verse 4. These cords of kindness were a loving restraint to them. I provided for you. I protected you. I took care of you. I gave you manna in Egypt. I gave you water from the rock. I gave you land from the Canaanites. All that you have was from me. And then you have this image of a loving herdsman taking care of his animal. Often a cattleman would lift the yoke, lift whatever package, whatever's on the back of the animal's shoulders so that when the animal bent over to eat that package, that yoke wouldn't interfere with the feeding, wouldn't hit the animal's head. 
I mean, you see, these are tender verses. This is God caring for his people, feeding his people, healing his people, helping them to walk. God loved Israel like a son, and yet they turned to the world. Can this happen to us? Can we receive gifts from God and yet at the same time turn away from the gift giver? Well, sure, this is what we do anytime we take credit ourselves for the good things in our lives. Israel neglected to see all that God was doing. And judgment would come. Verse 5, Assyria, they're temporarily down, but Assyria is going to get stronger. They're going to conquer Israel. Verse 6, Israel wasn't looking to the prophets for their counsel, and the enemy would swarm their cities, break down their gates. Verse 7, even then the people were bent on turning away from God. And yet in the beginning of verse 7, God still calls them my people. These next verses continue to give us a window into the heart of God. Verse 8, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. Then we see God's emotions on display in these pages as he asks four questions. He's showing Israel and he's showing us how hard it was for him to turn Israel over to the enemy. These are strong expressions of divine emotion. No, Adma and Zeboim were cities that God annihilated along with Sodom and Gomorrah, wicked cities. God would not bring himself to deal with the cities of Israel in the same way he had dealt with these towns. And yet God's heart is broken for Israel. Verse 9, God won't completely destroy Israel, although judgment would come. Harsh judgment would indeed come, but it's not the end. You know, as, you read, as you read these pages or as you talked about them in your community groups this past week, do, do you see the tender compassion of God? I mean, this chapter has God's emotions on display. Now, some have said God can't have emotions, can't express emotions, but this isn't true. God, like the human beings he made in his image, is capable of a wide range of emotions. But the difference is God expresses his emotions in perfect balance. And here we see God's compassion and love on display. Hosea's love for Gomer pointed to this. So you got to remember again as we walk through these pages, the illustration that we saw in Hosea chapters 1 through 3, that illustration of Hosea's love for Gomer is right at the forefront, even as we read these pages, that Hosea pursued an adulterous wife. He pursued her again and again, even showering her with gifts, with necessities, while she was with another lover. And then he purchased her out of slavery and reconciled her to himself. Oh, friends, Redeemer Church, this is God's love for us. God's love is not a mechanical love. It's not a, a feelingless love. It's, it's a passionate love. It's a love filled with emotions. It's a love so lovely that while we were spiritually cheating on him, while we had turned away to idols, while we had turned to the world, while we were still sinners, this God pursued us. And he pursued us so much so that unlike Hosea, who just went to that marketplace to purchase Gomer, our God came to us from heaven to earth. Jesus, God in the flesh, came down to earth in love. 
It was in love that he lived a perfect life and became a perfect sacrifice for us. It was in love that he marched to the cross that the one who knew no sin became sin for us. It was in love that he faced the full wrath of God. It was in love that he faced the judgment of God that you and I deserve. And God offers this love to all. But we have to turn to him. We have to acknowledge him repenting of our sin and by faith, trusting Jesus to save us. My friend, if you've never done that today, I just want to tell you there's no greater love than that. There's no greater love than the love that our true God has for his people. If you've never done that, do that today. Turning away from that love is as misdirected as Israel's response. I mean, when we read about Israel here, it looks crazy. They look insane to have someone love you so much, to have someone so tenderly care for you and compassionately love you, and yet to turn away? That's ridiculous, and and there would be drastic consequences for Israel as a result. Verses 10 and 11, God will bring swift judgment. Verse 12 is difficult to translate. The word walk also means to roam or to wander. Some translations say Judah walks with God. Others say Judah wanders from God. Two opposite, separate meanings. Or both are actually true. Judah was faithful for longer than Israel. But in the end, both wander from God. Both are judged and exiled to the Assyrians. The point is that while judgment would come, God will not completely destroy his people. He keeps his promises. God will someday gather exiles back to worship him. This is either pointing to the Assyrian captivity or perhaps from another worldwide dispersion. But in this case, in Hosea's day, the people wouldn't turn back. And that's what we see in chapters 12 and chapters 13. It's heartbreaking. It's the ultimate love story, but Israel won't accept the love. It's all right there in front of them. But they're looking for it somewhere else. When the grass is greener on the other side. But in reality, it's only desert over there. Chapter 12, verse 1. Ephraim feeds on the wind and pursues the east wind all day long. They multiply falsehood and violence. They make a covenant with Assyria and oil is carried to Egypt. Now, here's a metaphor of what Israel is doing when it follows other nations. It's a vain pursuit. It's like feeding on the desert wind. Now, no one in their right mind would go feeding on the hot desert winds. No one would have a diet of desert wind. But we know a little bit about what this is like, right, living in Dubai. It's finally starting to get hot in Dubai. Now, May was a good month, right? May, the weather was actually quite nice. But this last week, did you notice something turned? And it was hot. It was really, really hot. During the good weather months, January, February, March, I don't know about you, but I forget that it actually gets hot here. Do you ever do that? Do you ever think to yourself, it can't be that hot in July. Whenever heat we get, it'll be fine. We'll make it through. Be no problems. But no, in reality, it's hot. It's hot, and it feels like walking in an oven. Now, if you just moved here, we're glad you're here. (laughs) Welcome to Dubai. Let me help you look on the positive side. If you just moved here, you're in for a free all-you-can-sauna package this summer. No one has to pay for a sauna in Dubai. Did you know that? Have you ever thought of that? All you have to do is just step outside. Your pores are unclogged. 
and you feel really nice. Well, when the wind comes in July, it's unpleasant, it's suffocating. And what God is saying here in Hosea is, Israel, that's you. When you turn away from me and go to those idols, it's like you're feasting on the desert wind. When you turn to things other than God to satisfy your souls, it's like having hot air for dinner. It's ridiculous. But that's what we do when we wait on that next business deal or that job promotion. We think, finally, if I can just do that, then I'll be happy. Or you think, I just need friends. I need more friends. And so you do every social event possible, and you try to make friends because you think, if I just have friends, if I'm known by others, if I'm popular, then I'll feel like I'm worth something. Or maybe it's a ministry goal. You know, you think to yourself, if I could just be an elder, if I could just be a deacon, if I could just be a community group leader, if I could just play in the band, if I could just work at the bookstall or the connections team, or if I could just, just have this role, then I'd feel good about myself. Then I feel like I'm, I'm contributing something. I'm fulfilling my potential. I mean, it could be anything. I don't know what it is for you. It could be money. It could be relationships, power, control, fame, prestige. And what God is saying is when you chase after those things, instead of chasing after me, it's like you're chasing hot air. It's like eating the wind. For Israel, they thought the safety and security of politics would help them. They thought making alliances with other countries would help them. They thought pledging allegiance to the various idols and various gods, if they just cover all their bases and go after all of them, then they'll be safe. And so in verse 2, God compares Israel to Jacob, the great patriarch in Genesis. And he says, don't be like your great-great-grandfather, at least not how he was in the beginning. Verse 3, in the womb, Jacob took Esau by the heel. Jacob and Esau were brothers. Esau was older, but Jacob was quite a sneaky little lad. And there in the womb already, you see a little taste of his sneakiness and trickery. He's grabbing Esau by the heel. This would really mark Jacob's life. He was always trying to run his life his own way apart from God. And God would give the promised blessing to Jacob. The younger son, Jacob, I loved. Esau, I hated. But Jacob just couldn't trust God with that. Jacob had to take matters into his own hands. And one day, Esau came home starving. And he thought he was going to die of hunger. Now, this seems a little ridiculous. Now, I've seen hungry people, and I've seen angry people. Where, where I come from, we call them hangry, hangry people. And when you're hangry, I get it. I get it. You want to eat. But this was a little over the top. Esau comes in, he says, I'm going to die, and he begs Jacob for some stew. Oh, of course, brother. I'd love to give you some of my award-winning, delicious, succulent Michelin star stew. But you'll have to pay me with your birthright. It's a big cost. Birthright as the oldest son was a big deal. Your father's blessing was passed down to you. And Esau says, well, sure, take it. What good is my birthright if I'm going to die? I'm hangry. Well, later on, Esau doesn't keep his word. And his father Isaac wants to give him the blessing. Jacob and his mom catch on. And so Jacob does some trickery, pretends to be Esau, gets the blessing. There's deceit. There's lying. Now Esau wants to kill Jacob. And Jacob runs for his life. That's, that's a good plan when someone wants to kill you. Go run. So he runs. He goes to Haran, the place of Abraham. And he meets a woman at the well. And he sees Rachel. And 
He says, I want to marry that woman. And so he talks to her uncle, her guardian, Laban, and he says, Laban, I want to marry Rachel. And Laban says, well, better I give her to you than to another man. Did you notice there, he never said yes. He was a tricky man as well. Laban says, okay, work seven years for me. So Jacob goes to work seven years. It's a lot of time for for a dowry, but... But he wants to marry Rachel, so he does it. Seven years, the time for the wedding comes. It's at night, the honeymoon, it's dark. She's veiled, the marriage is consummated. And in the morning, Jacob wakes up and behold, it was Leah, Rachel's sister. He got the wrong woman. Now talk about a bad day. That's a bad day when you marry the wrong woman, right? Jacob had a bad day. He runs out of the tent in panic, probably hair all disheveled, and he goes to Laban and says, Laban, why have you deceived me? You see, the deceiver had been deceived. Laban's response, oh, friend, it's not our custom to give the younger daughter before the older daughter. Now, I'm sure Jacob could care less about the customs. Well, seven more years, he works for Rachel, and finally, after that, Jacob, his family, they sneak out in the middle of the night, but Laban chases them after um, Rachel stole one of her father's idols as a good luck charm. Then Esau comes after them as well, and Esau brings 300 servants, and Jacob thinks, okay, this is it. I'm going to die. He didn't have much of anything. 300 servants, thinks Esau's going to kill him, and he does what he's always done, is trust in himself. And so he sends gift after gift after gift after gift, possession after possession to Esau to try to appease him. Maybe he won't kill me if I just give him all my stuff. Well, then one night, verse 4 happens. He strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He met God at Bethel, and there God spoke with us. Now, the angel here is the angel of the Lord. It was God himself. Jacob finally, after all that deceit, after all that pride, after all that self-reliance, he turns to God. He meets God at Bethel. He wept. He pleaded with God to bless him. And God was looking for Jacob's heart after trusting in himself and in the world all those years. Finally, 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 Jacob gets it. This is what God is telling Israel. Israel, you're like Jacob. You've turned to the world. You've been led by deceit. Instead of trusting me, you've worked all kinds of schemes. These idols that you worshiped were good luck charms because I wasn't enough. So you went after everything. Israel, do what Jacob finally did. Trust me and repent. Well, friends, maybe this is some of you. Maybe you're here and you've been wrestling with God for far too long. Well, the answer is to relent and to repent. To relent of your self-reliance, to relent of your pride, and to repent of your sin to let go of the control you think you have over your life, to repent of your sin against the holy God. It's ironic that the place where Jacob got right with God was Bethel, since Bethel was the place where the Israelites had gotten wrong with him by worshiping idols. Jacob's return to God at Bethel provided a good example for the Israelites to get right with him there too. Maybe Dubai is the place where your life went off the track where you veered away from God. 
Well, the wonderful thing about God's grace is Dubai can also be the place where you turn to God. Let this place be the place of your turning. Meet the Lord here too. Well, the call of verse six for Israel to repent, it's a call to you and me as well. By God's grace, return, hold fast to love and justice and wait continually for your God. Rather than trying to orchestrate your life your own way, wait on the Lord. Jacob needed this message. Israel needed this message. And you and I need this message. Because verses seven and eight, a merchant in whose hands are false balances he loves to oppress. Ephraim has said, ah, but I am rich. I have found wealth for myself and all my labors. They cannot find in me iniquity or sin. See, a merchant would often cheat customers with a false balance. Now, here's what would happen. If you go to the marketplace to buy three shekels of grain, you'd have a balance, a scale, and on the one side of the balance, you would put three shekels. And on the other side, you would start putting all the grain. And so when those evened out, you would have three shekels of grain. But what these deceitful, wicked merchants would do is they would shave a little bit off of those shekels to make them lighter and lighter. And so in reality, you would be cheating your customers. What God is saying is, Israel, you are also oppressive. And you have found comfort in those riches. And they think they're getting away with it. Why? Because there's no immediate judgment. But does judgment always come immediately? No. There's not a one-to-one correlation with our sin. We don't sin and immediately get struck down by lightning. If that was the case, there would be a whole lot of lightning and we'd all be dead. It may look like you're getting away with your sin. Here's the false logic about sin and evil. Because God hasn't judged me yet, God will never judge me. So we just continue on in evil. Everything is okay. But that's completely backwards. Why hasn't God judged their sin or our sin? It's not because he won't. It's not because he can't. It's because he's patient. It's because he's a patient God. The judgment we deserve for our sin is death. The wages of sin is death. It's not because he's powerless to do so. The wages of sin is death. This makes sense. God made us. God is perfectly holy, and we are not. And our sin separates us from God. No, it's a grace that he doesn't judge immediately, and yet it would have been in his right to do so. Well, the fact that there's still evil in the world actually means God is extending grace. God could eradicate evil in a moment, but each day Jesus delays, day after day after day, is another day of grace, and it's another opportunity for sinners to repent. God was warning Israel, judgment is coming, judgment is coming, judgment is coming, repent, repent, repent. Verse 9, a day of exile is coming, because verse 10, they wouldn't listen. They didn't listen to the prophets. Verse 11, Gilead and Gilgal were places of past faithfulness. Now they're places of idolatry. Their altars also are like stone heaps on the furrows of the field. Now the land Israel had occupied was very stony ground. 
And so when farmers plowed, they had to first move the stones out of the way. So they'd gather stones and they would pile those stones up. What you'd have is several piles scattered all throughout the field. And God is saying, your altars, Israel, are like those piles. They're everywhere I look. Idol worship all over the place. Verse 12, the Lord reminds Israel of their humble origins. They were like Jacob, who was a refugee who had to work a humble occupation to pay the dowry for his wife. You were lowly, but verse 13, by the prophet, in this case, speaking of Moses, I made you a nation through him. He cried out against your wickedness. But verse 14, Ephraim provoked God to anger. The Lord will leave his blood guilt on him. Here's what that means. Blood guilt. It's when you've committed sin where there's no offering that can be given except your own blood. Capital punishment. Now God is saying it's time for capital punishment. Your sin deserves death. And then chapter 13, God spells out Israel's impending doom more and more clearly. Verse 1, we see that Ephraim was a mighty tribe. It was the strongest. And when he spoke, there was trembling. It was the London, the Dubai, the Tokyo of its day. But Ephraim exalted himself, became proud, and lost his fear of God. They looked to the Baals. Verse 2, they sinned more and more. All kinds of idols made specially by the craftsmen. It was a Romans 1 kind of day. They substituted nature for God. They substituted the creation for the creator. And it was so ridiculous that they would even kiss the idols. Israel, here's what's going to happen to you now that you've gotten rid of God. Verse 3, you're like the morning mist, gone. You're the dew that goes away early, gone. You're the chaff that swirls, gone. The smoke from a window, gone. You're gone with the wind. Israel would vanish from the land. Verse 4, it's because you look to these other gods. But I am the Lord your God. I am your Savior. Verse 5, I took care of you in the wilderness. I kept you alive. I gave you manna. I gave you water. Verse 6, no, Israel, the problem wasn't that I failed you, but that I've provided for you and you've gotten proud. God says, I gave you vineyards you didn't plant. I gave you wells you didn't dig. I gave you houses you didn't build. I was behind it all. But in your times of prosperity, in your good times, in your good seasons of life, you forgot me. You neglected me. You relied on yourself. You thought you didn't need me anymore. You became independent. Oh, blessing led to satisfaction, which led to pride, which led to independence. And this is the, the crazy cycle. You get blessing. Blessing's good. But what if that blessing leads you to satisfaction and you, you have no needs? And then that satisfaction leads to pride, to you thinking you could do it on your own. And that satisfaction then leads to independence, fully living apart from God. Blessing, satisfaction, pride, independence. It's a crazy cycle where we turn away from God and turn to ourselves. Pastor Chuck Swindoll has said, I've seen a million men live through adversity. I've seen very few live through prosperity. That's true. We've seen so many live through hardships and heartaches, but how many people have we seen live faithfully through prosperity after prosperity? See, wealth, achievement, even good health can tempt us to relying on our own strength. 
Why does prosperity lead us to forget the Lord? It's because prosperity brings with it the temptation to believe that we're our own providers. Because we don't feel needy, we think we can take care of ourselves. Well, how do we combat this? Well, Deuteronomy chapter 8 tells us, tells us that we should remember the Lord. Tells us that we should remember the Lord your God as the one who gives you all things. That's really what the book of Deuteronomy is about. Remember the Lord. He's telling us, remember, I brought you out of Egypt. He's telling the Israelites, I brought you out of the house of slavery. Remember, I brought you out of the hardship of the wilderness. I protected you from fiery serpents. I protected you from scorpions. I brought you water when there's no water. I fed you in the wilderness with manna. I took care of you. Now, the great antidote to neglecting the Lord is to remember the Lord. And so in the great words of children's musician Colin Buchanan, if you stub your toe when you get out of bed and you slip in the shower and you knock your head, if you miss your brekkie and your bike tires flat, if your dog eats your lunch and you step on the cat, remember the Lord. Remember that he is in control. Remember the Lord. He's watching his children. He cares. Oh, oh. Remember the Lord. Now, he's not speaking of prosperity in that song, but it was too good to pass up. The point is the same. My kids sing that song. They know that song. It's on their hearts because, friends, that is so key that we would remember the Lord, that we would not forget him, that we would not neglect him. Redeemer Church, remember the Lord. Remember the Lord in the good times. Remember the Lord in the bad times. Don't neglect him. Remember his great gifts to you. It's his work. He's given you so much. Even seemingly little things. He gives us shelter. He gives us food to eat. He gives us water to drink. He gives us air to breathe. He gave us the health to be here in this room this morning. He gave us a church to worship in, in the heart of the Middle East. He's provided for us in different ways. Some of us have jobs, families, friends. But none of that, friends, if you're a believer in Christ, none of that compares to what we have in Jesus. None of that compares to the fact that in, in the end times, we will be with Jesus. When he comes back, we will be with him, surrounded by all believers from all times and in all places, gathering around the throne, gathering around the marriage supper of the Lamb, worshiping Jesus face to face with our Savior forever and ever and ever. And in that day, there will be no tears. In that day, there will be no pain. There will be no regrets. There will be no conflict be perfectly worshiping our wonderful God forever and ever and ever and ever. Oh, friends, we need to remember that that's all come into place because of God's undying love for us and sending Jesus to die to reconcile us to himself. And so we remember the Lord. We read God's word regularly. We gather brothers with brothers in Christ, sisters with sisters in Christ to read the Bible. We are accountable to each other to remind one another to live for Jesus. We read the Bible with our kids. We memorize scripture with them. We gather here on Fridays. We meet in community groups to study the word. We do that because, friends, it's so easy to forget. It's so easy to rely on ourselves. Well, there's a warning for Israel if they don't do this in verse 7. I'll be like a lion and a leopard and will hit you out of nowhere. Or verse 8, I'll be like a bear robbed of her cubs. Now, here's just a little tip for you. This is free of charge this morning. When you see a bear cub in the wild, you know, cute little bear cub, fluffy little teddy bear, don't pet it. Don't befriend it. 
Don't cuddle that little cute little teddy bear. Why? Well, because mama bear is probably around the corner. And when mama bear is jealous, she'll take you out. If Israel doesn't turn back to God, he'll be like a jealous mama bear. He'll devour them like a lion. All this was a foreshadowing of Israel's exile. Israel would go into captivity soon in 722 B.C. The southern kingdom of Judah would last a little bit longer, and around 586 B.C., they would go into captivity. But verse 9, Israel turned against the Lord who had helped them. Verse 10, the people couldn't trust Yahweh for security. They wanted a king. In verse 11, God gave them a king, but their dependence on the king angered God. And the consequences continue. Verse 12, God wouldn't forget Israel's sins. They were rolled up in a bundle. Verse 13, he's like a child ready to be born, but wouldn't come out of the womb. Like a baby enjoying the comforts of the womb, Israel was enjoying the comforts of their sin. It's come full term. And despite the mother's efforts in labor to bring the child into freedom, Israel defied God and refused to repent. I mean, after nine months, the baby's ready to be born. It's normally a done deal. The mom delivers. And God says, just like a baby being born naturally, Israel should have repented. I mean, the birth pains of judgment should have woken Israel up. But Israel would rather die than repent. Israel has spurned God's correction in the womb meant to give her life. That mother's womb, that place of life would become a tomb for Israel. And death would come, verses 15 and 16. They'll be, in many ways, destroyed by Assyria, dashed into pieces. Those last verses are dark. Dashed into pieces, ripped open. It's a bleak picture. God's wrath will come upon them unless they repent. Now, this is hard to hear. Friends, reading verses of judgment like this isn't fun. It's hard and weighty and sobering to hear. And if if these verses are hard for you, let me just end this sermon by telling you my prayer for you. My prayer for you is that you would take God's side against your sin. That you would see your sin for as heinous and as severe as it is that we would read verses like verse 16 and realize that we deserve even far worse than what's stated in those lines because we have sinned against the holy God of the universe. But friends, I also pray that you would see this morning God's lavish grace, that you would see his wonderful love. I pray that you would look to the God of the universe and you would see his majestic love for you because Redeemer Church, our God is filled with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control because it was out of this love that there was another mother's womb that gave life. It was the womb of a virgin where God sent his own son, Jesus, God in the flesh, to be born. And even though death was coming for him, he came out of that womb. And instead of resisting during his life, he set his face towards Jerusalem. He marched willingly to his own death to reconcile us to himself. He conquered the power of sin and death. He took upon our sin upon himself. And in that day, death was arrested and there there would be a future for God's people. Oh, friend, remember the cross. Remember God's love for you. Remember that one who came for you to die. 
In the good times, remember God's love for you. Remember God's love for you because pride and self-reliance will bring judgment. Oh, he's a lovely God. Friends, look to him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for conquering death for us. Thank you for your patience towards us. For while we were rebellious sinners, Christ died for us. Oh, Father, help us to remember your great love towards us, that we did nothing to deserve you setting your face upon us, that we did nothing to earn your favor, that we did nothing to earn your love, that we did nothing to earn your affections, that we did nothing to earn your reconciling and precious love. Oh, Father, we thank you. Help us as a people, help us as a church to remember. Help us to remember the Lord. Help us to remember you in our trials and in our triumphs. Father, you are lovely. Would we not forget that? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.